invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me to Acts chapter 11, where we will be spending our time here together as we break the Word of God. But before we do that, I would like to ask you, as soon as you've opened your Bibles, and put your, put your index finger there and close it for a little bit, let us pray. Father God, we are here, and we are here for one reason, and that is to worship you and to be um, met by you. As you have promised, we claim the promise, O oh God, that where two or three are gathered in your name, that you are there in their midst, in our midst. And so today we're here, we are ready for your spirit to come and enter our hearts and fill us. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's uh, sermon title may have uh, interested you a little bit, Squeaky Wheels Get the Grease. I have my good friend uh, Brian Topple to thank for that. He used that on me not too long ago. It actually comes from a, a, a famous poem um, uh, uh, put together by Josh Billings, and it goes something like this. It goes, I hate to be a kicker. I always long for peace. But the wheel that squeaks the loudest is the one that grits the grease. And that is so true in different ways. And there are many ways, uh, several ways we actually uh, interpret this. And, you know, um, uh, you know um, and, and I'm, I'm, I, I want to tell you a story about how, you know, it came, you know this, this uh, story, I mean, this, this uh, um, aphorism came to me. It actually started about two years ago. Two years ago, we, uh, my wife and I started a process, which we didn't realize would, would take this long, to get these brand spanking new uh, Tesla batteries for our home. And uh, my wife, for those of you that, that, uh, uh, that know, my wife has um, MS, and so that qualifies her for free Tesla batteries as part of a, uh, a program because of all these fires that, you know, that, that go on every summer. And, you know, God, God forbid we should ever be without, an elect without electricity. And one of, the, um, one of the, the things that set her off is heat. She cannot handle heat. Her body cannot regulate heat. And so we, you know, we put, put in our, our application for those Tesla batteries, and we actually got them not too long ago. As a matter of fact, we got them less than a month ago. It took two years for the application to go through. We thought it was going to take six months. And so uh, my wife, after, you know, after uh, waiting for a good part of two, one and a half years, finally decided to get a little bit squeaky on those, on those guys who promised us that we would be getting our batteries in six months. And she threatened to move our uh, business to someone else, to another uh, company, um, because we'd been waiting for so long. And as soon as we said that, as soon as we said that, here come this, you know, the, a van coming to our house and say, you know, we're gonna, you're going to have your battery in less than a week. And sure enough, uh, the following week they come, they install our batteries, and now we are actually using the battery so much, we're, we are actually netting um, uh, more. Actually, we are, uh, how, how should I say this? We are not using any electricity at all from the grid. Most of the time, we're using either from our battery or from our, um, our solar panels on top of our house. 
Squeaky wheels get the grease, eh? And it worked for us. I mean, why not? Um, but there are other ways we can interpret this saying, this aphorism, squeaky wheels get the grease. As a matter of fact, that's what our text is all about. In, in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, shows a different kind of squeaky wheels. That would be the church of that day. Who got the grease from the Spirit of God. God oiled this squeaky church, grating against the will of God and got them ready and excited to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. And here's how it happens. We find this out in, as I said, in our text today in, 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 in Acts chapter 11. So let me just um, turn my Bible to that text as we begin to expound that text. And someone had let the, uh, you know, the uh, undesirables in. And, and the church is furious, as at least a you know, a small part or a big part of the church was furious. The gospel is, you know, Jesus Christ is risen. He is alive. He is resurrected from the dead. And with that message of the gospel going to the whole world, God is ready, but his church isn't ready. What do you do when something like that happens? Well, there are only two options, really. You either bend the message to the messenger or you bend the messenger to the message. And thank God, God chose the latter over the former. The gospel is ready for the world, but the church isn't quite ready. It's navel-gazing and self-consumed and has a lot of issues, and they couldn't look beyond the walls of their church, and they've got a lot of problems to solve. They ignore the message that came their way, and they blame the messenger when the messenger comes to town and says, why in the world did you do such a thing as welcoming these undesirables to our church? That's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 10 when we revisit, as we, I'm sure most of us are familiar with that story, the story of Peter and Cornelius and Peter's vision and the simultaneous vision of, of, of Cornelius as, 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 as Peter was having his prayer and his vision and all that. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 11, we find this story related to the church in Jerusalem who has now overheard all of these crazy things happening where God moves beyond his church or God moves before his church starts moving to bring about the purposes that he has for the rest of the world, for the entire world. And so we find this story starting, and here in Acts chapter 11, we start reading from verse 1, and it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the gospel also had received the word of God. Had received the word of God. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? I mean, they were furious. They were furious that people that have, not, that have been unwanted for quite a long time are being let in. You notice here in this, in this text that God is not even mentioned in the, as the subject of, 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 of this sentence here in verse 2. Actually, in verse, in verse 1, is it? Let me see. Uh, where it says the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Well, who gave them the word of God? 
This, by the way, is a rhetorical device often found in Scripture where God may not be mentioned, but God is in the background kind of, you know, doing the work unseen and unrecognized by those around them. And this rhetorical device is is known as the divine passive, where God recedes into the background and does His work but nobody acknowledges it, nobody sees it. And least of all, the, you know, the people there in Jerusalem, at least we're not ready to acknowledge that this was the work of God. And so what do they do? Rather than blame God, they blame the messenger. Classic, classic tactic, isn't it? When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? And thank God, thank God that God applies grace to his church all the time. He does here and he does, I mean, in this instance, and he does, he does with us as well. God applies grace to his church and turns us from, squeaky, uh, from a squeaky bunch of wheels to a well-oiled and inspired partners of God ready to partner with God in doing what he wants to do. Because guess what? Jesus is alive and he's risen. He's risen from the dead and he wants to save everyone to the exclusion of no one. How does God do it? How Peter tells us, Peter tells us, relates to us this story. And that, that's why, you know, whenever you read uh, uh, this part of Scripture, Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11, they're basically a repeat of themselves. Uh, because now what we have here in chapter 11 is Peter relating to the church there in Jerusalem, to the church here in Auburn, what God has decided to do even before his people started moving. How does God do it? How does God uh, change us from squeaky wheels to, wheel, uh, to, to, to uh, well-oiled wheels ready to do gladly the bidding of God, becoming gospel proclaimers to everyone to the exclusion of no one? Peter tells us how God does it to him, and by telling us his story, he tells us how God does it to all of us. How God turns him and turns us from someone who was grading against to someone inspired to do the will of God. And this is really, um, I mean, there's a lot we can draw from this, from this text, but I just want to draw out three things from us, for us today. How does God turn us from squeaky to well-oiled Christians ready to partner with God in doing his bidding? And being loving to all people. Well, first, the first thing that we, we find out is this. How does God turn us from, uh, from squeaky wheels to well-oiled Christians? Well, we have to pray a lot. And this is how the story really starts. I mean, um, uh, you, however broken we are, however many baggages we may carry as individuals and as a church, the great thing is that we have a gracious God and He is always willing to work with His church. Whatever is the condition of the people in it. However broken we are, however many baggages we carry that make us great against the will of God, if prayer is part of our daily life, change is always a possibility. Why? Because prayer 
is our opening to God. There is always hope when you're always talking to God. Take a look at Acts chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. But Peter began and explained it to them in order, his experience there in chapter 10. We're not going to go through that. Okay? And look at what it says in verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And so this prayer became the catalyst. Peter's change started, actually, before he even knew it. He was praying. Prayer is a posture, as I said. It's a posture of openness. It's what God needs to communicate to you and me, to all of us, individually, and as a church. There was a man who starts his day, and he goes to work at 6 o'clock. And before he, before he, um, before he gets to work, he always does this one thing, and that is he always, he, and he always arrives at his church, which was open every single day at 6, 10 a.m. He arrives there, and then he, he goes and sits in the pew, and then the first thing he does is he, he sits there, and, and then he says these words, and then he doesn't say anything after that. For 10 minutes, he sits there, he sits there for 10 minutes. He would say, hi, God, it's me, Joe. And, that, and that, that's, all he's, that's, the, that's the extent of his prayer. And the rest of his prayer is just a prayer of silence. And as he soaks in the presence of God in his life, and, and, you, and you ask yourself, what does he gain from such, a, such prayer? Silence. And, well, I can tell you what. He gains the possibility of being spoken to by the Spirit of God in the depths of his soul. And so prayer is the beginning. Prayer is the catalyst for, for, for your, for our transformation. So let me say this to all of us. Prayer is a catalyst for transformation. So don't wait to be changed so you can pray. Pray so you can be changed. And so we find as we, you know, continue on with this, with this amazing story of the transformation of one man from somebody that's so biased and so bigoted, you know, he could, he could not see that the love of God is being, is being you know, the, the great love of God for all people is being um, hindered by his own sense of biases and bigotry and what have you, for, by his own struggles. And I ask myself sometimes, you know, is there anything in my life, is there anything in your life that might be blocking the love of God from going from you to the rest of the circle, of your circle out there in the world? Is there anything at all that might be blocking that so that you are not partnering with God and you are squeaking, a squeaking wheel desperately in need of oiling? God uses prayer as his opportunity to speak to us about his great love for all people and what we need to be to, be, uh, to become his partners in, in gospel proclamation. And God says, the second thing is, from, we get from this story, is that if we're going to really be partners of God in taking the gospel to the whole world, then there's another thing we need to do. And uh, Peter found this out really rather quickly, and that is that we need to love a lot. By that, I, by that I mean we need to love a lot like God loves a lot. And here in this, in our story, we find out just how God, you know, uh, communicates this uh, to, some, to Peter, 
who grew up in the church and knows everything about the church and knows the truth about God and, and knows all of the practical stuff of Christianity, his religiosity, his, his piety. Notice how God uses our own religiosity to get his point across that sometimes, sometimes our own sense of piety, our own sense of religiosity are often used by us as excuses from being as loving as we ought to be. And so sometimes we find ourselves excusing ourselves from the basic principle of love. I was reading, uh, I was reading Corinthians the other day, and you know what I've been doing these days, and this is, you know, this is like a hobby. Uh, it's, not, it's an unusual hobby, but you've know, you got to forgive me. I'm a pastor, so this is what I do. And that is, I've been actually reading Scripture, and, 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 and I've, cha- I've been challenging myself to, um, to summarize every chapter of Scripture uh, using only one sentence. That's pretty hard. I'm, I'm actually stuck. I'm stuck in 2 Corinthians. Uh, because 2 Corinthians is not like one of those um, um, uh, scripture, I mean, uh, books of, of scripture that is very clear. I mean, Paul goes all over the place. He doesn't tell you when he stopped. Has anybody, I mean, anybody, nobody, nobody ever told these writers of scripture to stop their thoughts at the end of each chapter and begin a new, a new thought at the, at the beginning of a new chapter. But anyway, what I was, I was, I was beginning to say is this, that, you know, I was, um, I was summarizing, reading, reading, um, meditating, and summarizing 1 Corinthians, and I got to 1 Corinthians 13. That's easy enough to summarize, right? And how do you think I summarized that text? I mean, that, that's, that scripture. Here's how I summarized it. Love is the greatest principle of Christian action. Love is the greatest principle of Christian action. Everything else belongs beneath that. And yet there are many things in our lives that may, that, that, that may, be, that, that may cost us from realizing this. And we start majoring in minors. And, we, and, and, and even if we don't know it, we start blocking the will of God. We start grading against the will of God. And God is already doing some marvelous stuff you know, ahead of us. And we are resisting or perhaps even we're not realizing what's happening. And then, and then what happens is rather than being, becoming partners with God, we become obstructionists of the grace of God. Excuses. Notice what he says. We're going back to chapter, uh, to verse 5. Um, uh, you know, it says, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. Something, oops, I forgot to click this. All right, there it is. I was, uh, let me repeat that again. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down. There it, there it is again, that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, divine passive being let down from heaven by its uh, four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, he says, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. This is, we Adventists would understand this. We know this. This is, this is every bit a part of our own personal piety as, as Adventist Christians. We know this text and we know this like the back of our hands but this is there's a red flag here you know these are as you you will notice um you will notice here as as he mentions the animals here that the animals that are being mentioned here are the ones that we're not supposed to even touch 
We're supposed to just be far away from, much less eat these, you know. Look, I observed animals, beasts of prey. If you look at Leviticus chapter 11, you will see that every beast of prey and reptile and birds, every, everything that eats another animal is forbidden to be eaten, right? So this is a red flag. These are the kind Leviticus 11 tells us to stay away from. But God asks the unthinkable of Peter. And it says in verse 7, And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. You see, God exposes our foibles. God exposes our foibles not to condemn us, but to change us. Peter, you've been hiding behind my health loss long enough. Time to eat and digest these dirty, filthy animals and make them part of you. You've avoided my greater law long enough in this process. Love your neighbor as yourself. Kill and eat, Peter. Kill and eat so that you will know that God loves everyone as he loves you. See how God subtly uses his personal piety, utilizing this good practical law that to this day we practice to our advantage? He uses that because somehow or other, the people back then, and I, you know, maybe I could even say some people today, excuse themselves from loving others, utilizing such personal practical piety as, as this Levitical law. The problem, of course, is not the good and ever so practical dietary laws of Leviticus 11. It's not because God is saying you can eat anything you want now. He's saying stop hiding from the, such laws to excuse, and excusing yourselves from being loving to others around you. Because God loves everyone to the exclusion of no one. The problem is the air of holiness, the attitude of superiority, the distance that we create from people that often develop from such a practice, a good practice, clogging our souls sometimes and making us squeaky Christians, squeaky wheels. Let's not do it. Let's not do it. We grate like dirty wheels against God's will, but God keeps pushing us. That's what I like about God. He doesn't judge us. Nowhere here in the scripture does he judge his people. Well, you know, God is very patient. And rather than judging Peter and, and the church of the day, God says to those people, I'll make you a loving bunch yet. I'll make you a loving bunch yet. And he drives home uh, this, you know, he drives home his point uh, and, and he does it three times according to Peter, whether he repeats the vision three times or he repeats, you know, the, uh, 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 the command, kill and eat. We don't know exactly, but here's what the story, how the story progresses. Verse 9, but the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. Whoops. Uh, that's not what it says over there. 
The voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. Because of course, Peter had said, Lord, I can't eat all of that stuff. Good for you, Peter. And now it's time to move beyond that to what I have been trying to tell you all along. Don't let your piety get in the way of you loving people as you ought to love them. You see, God loves all people, and so should we. Whatever gunk exists in our soul, God exposes it in order to get rid of it, to change us to become the best version of ourselves so we can be partners of His in the gospel proclamation. But if the church is to live up to its calling to take the gospel to every people to the exclusion of no one, then the third thing must happen. We must not only pray a lot, we must not only love a lot, we must get used to changing a lot. Change is not a bad thing. And I've been to churches that, you know, actually one of the things they would ask me um, when, when I got to, church, to the churches, they would say, Pastor, what are you going to change in the church? Are you going to tra- change the church a lot? And, you know, some people are afraid of a lot of changes right away or immediately. Because if the church is to live up to its calling to take the gospel to all, we must really be comfortable with this word, change. Because nobody is perfect, and God is always pushing us to expose those little foibles that we have within us in order to make us a true image of himself. Peter keeps his story going, and, and you know, I, I want to, rather than read a whole chunk of this story uh, here in, in the interest of time, I just want to kind of capture the gist of that. And um, imagining this conversation with uh, Peter and, and, and the church there in Jerusalem, especially that noisy, squeaky group called the, uh, the circumcision group. Hey, look, I could just imagine Peter saying, hey, look, I had just as much a problem as you letting these people in the church, but I had nothing to do with it. I didn't even want it. See now how God changes Peter from a squeaky wheel grating against the will of God to a well-oiled person, a gospel-centered person who loves everyone. And the point is that God can do it to us as well, to you as well, to us as well. What are your inherent biases. So Peter keeps his story going, and he says, look, look, man, the Spirit just keeps setting me up. I mean, he doesn't stop, and he tells me to keep moving with him. And three men, just as, you know, I see this vision, three men arrived from Caesarea, and, and, and in the vision, I was told, go with them. So what was I supposed to do, man? I, so I went. And so I did, and this Roman centurion meets me there, and, and he says that he had a vision around the time when I had my own vision. It was creepy, dude. It was really creepy. And tells me more, and he tells me that I'm supposed to tell you something, uh, tell him something. And I was like, really, I was? I never thought of it. Never even occurred to me. And then, just as I was about to talk to the guy, whoosh, 
The Holy Spirit descends on all of them. And then, you know, I remember the words of our Lord, the words of our Lord, and he said, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, man, we received the Holy Spirit. They weren't supposed to receive the Holy Spirit, but who am I to say that they're not supposed to when it's happening before my eyes? I'm telling you, you're crucifying the wrong guy. If you want to revolt, guess who's doing this? It's not me. I had nothing to do with it. It was all the Spirit of God. So don't crucify the messenger. The Spirit did it all. And I could just, you know, I could just imagine Peter telling, you know, those people there, the, you know, the folk there in, in Jerusalem. And, um, and, 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 and then, then Peter goes into this, you know, he, by the way, he, he tells the story very methodically. He wanted to make sure that he communicated the story well. And so by doing that, he actually reveals to us as well how Peter himself changes in just a matter of a couple of days from somebody who begrudged going to where God wanted him to go to somebody who was passionate about partnering with God and reaching out to all. So Peter and everyone listens, listening to him uh, begins as, you know, by, with, with this grudging uh, acknowledgement. And this is always where we begin when God does something that we don't particularly like. We, it's a grudging acknowledgement. This is what we find in Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 17. Take a look at this. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. It was happening before my very eyes. Grudging acknowledgement. From grudging acknowledgement, he moved very quickly at that to silence. He and those, actually, those people that were listening with, with can you imagine their, their, you know, their jaws must have dropped? <gasps> really? So all that that was happening, you didn't set it all up? No, how could I do all of that stuff? And they were, they, were, they were in silence, shocked perhaps. But silence is a good thing because silence helps us to kind of reorder our brains, our minds, and, and, and make sense of the things that God is doing that, you know, that doesn't make sense to, to any of us. And, and, and so silence is, is, is something good because you know, God is readjusting our faith and our piety from the depths. Silence. It's a good thing. And so we find in the first part of Acts chapter 18 this. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And then soon after that, they move from being grudging, you know, grudgingly obedient to being silent. They move from that to the third part. And this is worship. Once they realize what's happening, you know, they, they, they had to study it. They had to make sense of it. Make sense of it. And if you're like me, you know, if I'm, if I, you know, I, I told this to somebody uh, not too long ago um, that um, my personality is that when I'm the most quiet, it's time for you to look at my eyes. Because if my eyes are not glazed and I'm quiet, glazed over and I'm quiet, what that really means is that my mind is racing. 
that's those I can speak I think for both of us to those of us that are introverted that's that's how we deal with things and you know in other words a lot of times when I'm quiet is when I'm most engaged I can just see their eyes roving and then there's, you know, as, as, as God is readjusting their faith and, and, and they're having to figure out where is God in all of this? And as soon as they figure out, what do they do? They worship God. And this is, you know, you, if you read the email that I sent out this week and I said this, and I'm going to say it again, study, often done in silence, study and worship are twin sisters. One cannot happen without the other. If you're only studying and not worshiping, something is wrong with your studies. And if you're only worshiping and not studying, something is wrong with your worshiping. Because you're not touching both head and heart. And so now having studied, you know, having scanned their minds in silence, I don't know for how long, maybe for a few pressures, it doesn't have to be a long study. It can be as short as maybe a pause. And as soon as they realize what's happening here, and they realize this is God working. This is not Peter. This is God working. What do they do? What do they do? As soon as they fell silent, something else happens, and they said, and, and our text says, and they glorified God. And right after that, they moved from silence to worship. And you know, worship never ends with just worship. When you leave the hall, I mean, this sanctuary here, after you've been touched by the, by the hand of God, God wants you not just to go home. God wants you to go home and be a witness for him to everyone. Acts 18, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. God turns them quickly into witnesses for him as they make that decision right then and there to become witnesses for Jesus Christ. Here's what it says. Chapter, verse 18, uh, the third part, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Ah, then God has, you know, do you see that, that, that realization in their, in their minds? And they're finally convinced that this has, this, you know, this, this is something that God truly, truly wants. And not only that, that he wants them to be part of this great revolution to the whole world. Jesus is alive. His, his you know, his gospel needs to be communicated to everyone. And he wants to do it through you through you. And the good news is the oil is here so we can stop squeaking. It's been here for a very long time waiting to be poured out to every squeaky soul out there. So let me ask you this question. Any squeaky wheel in here? The squeaky wheels get the grease. And it's not such a bad thing. It is a good thing. All praise be to God.
Yes, Lord, we do want to be like you in our hearts, and wherever we fall, we, and whenever we fall, we understand, Lord, that you're always pushing us to be better. And we thank you. We thank you for being such a loving God to us. Help us to be your full partners, God, in gospel proclamation to the whole world, to the people with whom you have us in contact with. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.